Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Rebecca Ford. I'm here for today's interview episode with Natalie Jarvie. Hello. We've got a supersized episode today. We've got three big interviews. It's very exciting. It's Power Women. Yeah, the, the Power Women uh, episode hosted by two power women. Exactly. Um, so today we've got Helen Mirren, the star of 1923, Padma Lakshmi, the host, judge, and executive producer of Top Chef, and the creator and host of Taste the Nation, and Bridget Everett, who stars in Somebody Somewhere. Um, I thought we would start off with Helen Mirren, who I spoke to uh, for her work in 1923, which is a spinoff of the Yellowstone franchise in which she plays a really tough pioneer woman um, that I thought was such an impressive and really different performance for her. Yeah, I have to admit, I have not watched a lot of the Yellowstone Universe shows, uh, but I found it really interesting when I heard that Helen was going to sign on to one of these projects. And I'm curious if you learn more about how she got involved in this franchise. Yeah, so both um, Helen and Harrison Ford, who stars opposite her, signed on without seeing a script. So I was curious what exactly the writer and creator Taylor Sheridan pitched to her to get Helen Mirren to say yes to this. And she told me it wasn't much about the story or the character, which really surprised me. It was really just getting to know him as a person and visiting his ranch and meeting his family that really won her over, uh, which is not how I expected that to have started out. But she also talked a lot about the research she did for the project and where they are in season two. She has not seen any scripts yet, but it turns out that's just the way she likes it. So let's go ahead and take a listen. 
I'm so excited to welcome Helen Mirren to the podcast today. Helen, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to dive in and talk about 1923. I found this character so incredible to watch. You know, she's the first, the moment we meet her in the first scene, all the way through the very last moments of the first season, uh, you know, she's just the one I couldn't take my eyes off. And and so um, I'm curious, from the very beginning, I heard that you signed on uh, without seeing a script. So how did Taylor Sheridan sort of pitch this to you? Well, um, he didn't... He didn't describe the character particularly. Um, he didn't describe the journey of the character. Um, it was a jump into the unknown, absolutely, for both Harrison and I. He hadn't read a script either, but I think both of us had great faith in in Taylor's work that obviously we'd seen and enjoyed so much. Um, you know, he he's a he's an absolutely extraordinary writer and an extraordinary person on the on the sort of scene of storytelling if you like so it wasn't really anything to do with oh you know she's going to be this person and then that's going to happen and no there was none of that it was just a feeling of do we want to be with each other do we like spending mm. time with each other you know um i I, th- I thought it was very important that he got to know kind of who I was you know obviously over dinner you don't you know you only scratch the surface of a person um and and I felt I needed to know kind of who he was um and and so we just had a um a meeting like that just a you know a a social meeting and it, it, it was wonderful it was it was very revelatory for me it was you know at his home which was extraordinary and um you know meeting his wife and being with his his in his environment and and I found that to be a very um a very beautiful environment um so you know I I felt very comfortable and then the only thing you know that he pitched if you like was you know this is going to be a you know a long movie basically we're going to tell one story I I don't know how many episodes we'll take to tell that story but it's going basically going to be one story and I loved the idea of that as well um and and then yeah, honestly you know just jump jump in at, at the deep end um knowing that the period is going to be really really interesting an amazing period in in Western history, let alone in American history, I mean the history of the West, not the American West, Western culture, um, and uh, and and certainly the history of America. It's a, you know an extraordinary era, the twenties. So um, you know th- that was was um, I knew was going to be really you know very interesting. Of course, the other thing I have to say, I, the other really important thing, which I didn't neglected to say, was I knew that Taylor writes and has written fantastic female characters. And he never underestimates or underwrites or, or um, you know, puts to one, you know, shoves his female characters into a, cor- a corner. They're always very present. They're complex. They're you know they're right in the story and so you know that was that was the most important thing of all for me actually not that he said I'm going to do that but I I knew from what he'd done in the past that was his modus operandi if you like yeah and I think 
you know, once you hit the third episode, you sort of realize how important this character is going to become to the story. And what was it like for you to sort of finally read those scripts or talk to him about her arc uh, as it goes through the season? Um, We never really talked about it, honestly. I, I I just had faith because, you know, those women were extraordinary. You know, I, I, as a part of my research, I I read contemporary biographies, autobiographies of, of women, um, uh, pioneer women or the early settlers, female settlers of, of America, of the American West in particular. And I wanted to hear their authentic voices out of their own, you know, and to read those stories and realize how omnipresent death is, for example, um, and... and um, the sort of the the chaos of of those times, the necessity to think on your feet and be prepared to change and develop and and um, you know learn new learn new environments, learn new systems of 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 survival. You know, um, uh, you know the, all of those women were incredible. When you think of the women work walking with those wagons, you know, across America, um, dealing with everything that they were dealing with on top of of the actual work, you know, dealing with menstruation, dealing with childbirth, dealing with um, every, everything that they dealt with, you know, the strength of those women w- was incredible. So I kind of knew that this had to be a, a, a sort of an extraordinary character. And You've played so many different kinds of roles over your career, but I'm curious, was there anything you had to to sort of learn for the physical demands of this role? You know, there are these bigger action moments in this series. You are playing this rancher uh, woman. What was sort of the physical preparation like for that? A mind of a matter, basically, I think the physical preparation <laughs> was. I mean, I had to, I went to cowboy camp and learned how to drive a buggy, you know, and and and, mm-hmm. and learned how to get familiar with uh, with uh, around that sort of ranching world of and the smells and the textures and the and the attitudes, you know, uh, towards animals. Um, horses in particular, I've, I've, I've ridden often. I've, I've fallen off a horse many, many times. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> I, I'm no right. I, you know, I, I said right at the beginning to Taylor, I, I'm not a rider, Taylor. I really, you know, I can't, I, I'm not afraid of horses and I've fallen off horses, but I'm not a rider. I don't really know how to ride. So he said, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll put you in a buggy. And I, and so I learned to drive my buggy. But that whole, you know, world of the importance of animals, the, you know, the animals were there incredibly important in their world. You know, they were their um, way of getting around. They were their transport. They were incredibly important. And, and of course, within the context of our, of our story, you know, cattle are the most important thing in the world, as I say quite succinctly in, in one of the episodes. Uh, the cattle always come first. You know, yeah. not a world I'm personally particularly familiar with. I'm a city girl, really. Um, but um, but certainly a world I was sucked into and, uh, and, and loved when I found myself there. But yes, driving the buggy and, and you know, yes, physical stuff. But um, 
it's what they call doctor theatre, you know, so it's doctor camera. You know, when the camera's rolling, you, you find yourself being able to do all kinds of things which you'd never be able to do otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And one of the special things about this character is while she doesn't have biological children, she's so maternal to, you know, many of the younger members of the ranch. Uh, and and how did you sort of relate to to that aspect of her character? Well, it's interesting you say maternal. I don't think it is necessarily maternal. I think what it is is, mm. is, um, is practical and humane. Um, and it's interesting that you translate that as maternal, mm, which I think is, is interesting. It's kind of sexist in a way. Because I don't, mm. I don't think it is necessarily like maternal. It's practical. It's down to earth. It's realistic. And it's humane. And that could be a man or a woman having that kind of approach to human relations. Certainly, I, I think as a, as a woman having survived and continuing to survive in that environment, she has wisdom, knowledge to impart to the women around her, uh, the younger women, and also hopefully the younger men. But but uh, yeah, to the younger women, definitely. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good perspective. It's survivalist, really. It's survival, <laughs> absolutely. It is survival, and. You know that's what that's what that environment demands of you, especially. I mean, now you know, you've got your big trucks, four wheel trucks to drive around, and you know you've got your nice heating and cooling situations, and you've got your generator when the power goes out, and you know it's a it's a whole different situation now. And it it's so fascinating that it was not that long ago. It really wasn't. It's a hundred years ago, there are people alive who are a hundred years old, and um, and so it's within their lifetime. And yet, the change, the physical, technological change, is so so massive. It's it's incomprehensible, really, what's happened in the last hundred years. But yes, pure, unadulterated survival. You know, you're only warm if you've got wood in. It to get wood in, you have to collect the wood. You have to chop the wood. Um, you know, there are hard winters, hot summers. So, yes, su survival is the name of the game on every level. And emotional survival. And and certainly um, Kara talks to that when she talks, when she says to um, Jacob's character, you think you've suffered? You, have you suffered? What about this girl locked up in this house with, you know, lonely and on her own and, and isolated? What about, you know, um, the, uh, um, this other woman who, who lost her husband and died from grief, killed herself from grief? You know, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, this character has some of the best lines in the in the series, I do think, because it's, the dialogue is so incredibly written. Um, and you and Harrison uh, Ford have such a, a, a strong connection. Was that something the two of you had to build, like, in pre-production? How well did you to know each other? We really, you know, we've, we worked together a long time ago, and I'd loved working with him a long time ago, but we were very different people then, and a lot has happened to both of us since those days. But somehow, I don't know, 
I mean, you know, Harris, I don't know what Harrison thinks about me, but all I can say is I love him. And um, I felt weirdly, completely, it, it was a completely chemical thing. I just felt utterly at ease with him. And I didn't have any real reason to because, you know, he's, he's Harrison Ford. He's Harrison fucking Ford, you know. And and I, there was every reason for me to feel awkward and, and, you know, like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here and, I'm, you know, and all the rest of it. But um, I felt utterly at, at ease with him. And whether it's a, maybe in the nature of the characters that we're playing, I don't know. But um, and no, I don't. I think it. I think it, it was down to Harrison. Actually, come to think of it, it's down to Harrison, and how how he's developed into the person that he's developed into. Mm. I hear that a lot about you know people who work with him. You know, this being on, in a scene with Harrison fucking Ford. But <laughs> I also imagine people feel that way about being in a scene with Helen fucking Mirren sometimes. <laughs> and do you ever, uh, you know, when you're working with maybe talent that's just coming up and you maybe realize they might feel that way do you ever change how you you know welcome them into a scene or approach, you know, approach I, that? I try to be as totally sort of normal and professional as I can be I think also it helps because I'm so admiring of the young actors that I work with especially on 1923 you know they're to my mind they are so good and I watch them and I learn from them and I can't wait to play a scene with them, you know. And hopefully maybe they get that sense from me. I don't know. I mean, you know, I love being on the set with them. I enjoy their company. I laugh. I make jokes, you know. <laughs> um, and um, and and I try to make the set as as exciting and as open and as free and as accepting a, a space as as it can possibly be because I know that that's you know what I welcome as an actor so you know I, I certainly consciously you know try to make it that for other actors and the the show has already been renewed for a second season um I know we're we're dealing with a writer's strike right now but where were you in the process uh before all of that unfolded. Well, again, we don't we don't know. Taylor, being the extraordinary powerhouse that he is of writing, it's almost as if he writes in his sleep or something, you know. <laughs> but oh, I have to say, when the scripts <laughs> arrive, they are perfect. You don't want to change a word. You don't. No scene is too long. No scene is too short. You know, you just they're beautifully constructed. So. Um, and we are aware that he can work incredibly fast when he wants to. Well, not when he wants to, but he can work really, really fast. So we don't know. You know, um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he's got before the strike, if he'd already written, you know, um, a, a number of episodes. And if he has, then we can start work. But... If that's not the case, I, I guess we'll have to put it off for a while. So you haven't seen anything yet? No, the, no. Again, no, okay. once more, I, I suspect we'll be jumping in absolutely not knowing what's happening, not what's going to happen. I have to say I love that process. I don't particularly like prepping, you know. 
you know, I don't want to look at it and study it and, you know, and think about it, quite honestly. I want to just, I love cold <laughs> reading something. I love your very first, as an actor, your very first response to something, you know, where you, you're not even, you know, just pure instinct. And pure invention, that, that moment of pure invention, I, I, that I love. So I, you know, I don't plan and think about it. And, you know, I mean, of course, I do my research, you know, in, in terms of historical things. But once all the, of that is embedded in me, then I just let it rip, basically. I don't plan anything. And I love getting the scripts I'd be perfectly happy to get the scripts, you know, the night before we shoot them sort of thing, you know, and just jump in and do it. Mm. <laughs> and when I'm, I'm looking at your upcoming work, uh, you have this film Golda coming out, which looks like a very transformative performance. Yes, uh, very Was different. that something you were looking for? Um, not, not necessarily, but very different to what I just described, which is jumping in and doing it. Those <laughs> are very different because obviously you're playing a very well-known, well, to certain, certain, certain people, well-known character. People know what she yes. looked like, what she sounded like, what she walked, walked like. So you have to, you have to, you know, obey those um, uh, requirements. And, with Golda, no, a, a very, very different kettle of fish, really. Um, much more prep, you know, first of all, you know, three hours of makeup, for example. So, you know, a, a very, as you said, transformative, physically transforming role, which is, you know, different requirement, yeah. Do you feel like that's something you look for with what you say yes to these days? Things that are very, very different, uh, sort of? bouncing around like that? Yes, I do. Well, I, all, all my life, I've always sort of, you know, done that. I've, that's how I've led my um, my career, if that's the right word. I don't rep much like the word career, actually. But, um, yeah, it's, that's been the name of the game for me, is, is really to constantly, st you know, mix it up and constantly, hopefully, surprise people, you know, um, by, oh, what, what's she doing in that? <laughs> what, what, what does she think she's doing? Oh, my God, that's a terrible mistake. I'm sure a lot of that goes on. <laughs> but but I, I like to mix it up, absolutely. And we're almost out of time, but uh, I was wondering what other TV or film you have loved or consumed lately um, that you're a fan of? Well, of course, I was a huge fan of Succession. Um, mm -hmm. um, I just watched a um, German series called Cleo uh, with a wonderful, fabulous actress in it who reminded me rather of Jodie Comer, who is, you know, my sort of heroine at the moment, one of my heroine, heroine actors, actresses, if you like. I love watching great female performances. I just find it so exciting so, you know, uplifting to see these great actresses appear with great roles for them. Because it used to be the case you'd have a great actress, but there would be no role for her to play. So it's very exciting for me to see um, those actresses appearing. And um, so the, the young girl in, in Cleo is, is fantastic, 
very, very watchable. Really great. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you are not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So now we're going to listen in uh, to your interview, Natalie, with Padma Lakshmi, who is the, she was, I guess I should say, one of the main judges on Top Chef, but she also is deeply involved with the show Taste the Nation. So what made you excited to talk to her? Yeah, well, I think I was among the Top Chef fans who was really surprised and a little sad when she announced that she would be leaving the show after its 20th season. And so I wanted to find out more about why it was time for her to take a step back from Top Chef and what she was looking forward to doing next. And through my conversation, I learned that she really does have a passion for telling different kinds of stories about food that you can't really tell in a competition show like Top Chef. And she She's doing that with her Hulu docuseries, Taste the Nation, which is just this really lovely kind of blend of a travel show and a food show and uh, a kind of a cultural anthropological exploration of what it means to be an immigrant in America. And I, I really loved watching it. I felt like I learned a lot from that show. And it was interesting to hear from her about how she puts that project together, how she really thinks about, you know, telling stories about people and about identity through food. Great, let's take a listen. So I want to start, you shocked a lot of Top Chef fans when you announced uh, that the most recent season on the show would be your last. I want to know when you knew that it was time to move on. It's hard to say. There were so many factors, but, um, you know, I... The last couple of years have been very hectic for me because I've been juggling two shows and um, I just wanted to give Taste the Nation more of my time. It deserved it. It's a show that I created. You know, I I just don't think it was sustainable to do both shows. And I think sort of toward the end of London, I really felt like this was going to be my last, but I wasn't sure. And then um, very recently, it became incredibly clear that it was time to move on. Yeah. You talk about that sustainability. 
it's a credit to the work that you do and the work that the producers do that at this point, Top Chef feels like it could run itself. But I know that's not true. I know it's a lot of work behind the scenes. And it's my understanding that that London in particular, uh, this most recent season, it was World All Stars set in London and Paris was a real grind and hard on production. So tell me about what that was like behind the scenes. I mean, I think that, you know, whenever you take a show with 150 people in the crew abroad, there are a lot of logistics and moving parts. Um, I'm very proud of my crew. You know, I really feel like I'm like, they're like my family, almost all of them. I mean, not every single person, but most of the people on the crew. And I think we really pulled it off. I mean, for me, you know, the show is is pretty much baked by this point. Um, but it was just, it was time. I mean, I think I paid my dues. <laughs> I know you were also in London filming when Queen Elizabeth died. And I'm wondering what that experience was like, both personally and logistically. I was born in India. I still feel very Indian. And um, I have no allegiance to this queen or her ancestors. Um, so it didn't phase me, except that it inconvenienced it's just the shoot a little bit. Like, I don't care about the royals at all. I could care less about them. And um, I understand that it was a big deal for, you know, people in England, and that's fine. But as far as we were concerned, we just tried to stay out of the central area where all that was happening. But, um, you know, it was fine. Our, our studio was in Richmond, just outside of London proper. And, and so we were able to pivot and, and make sure that that didn't affect us that much. You know, we did scramble to change some locations, but other than that, it didn't really affect us. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know uh, that you uh, you play many different roles on Top Chef now. You're not just the host. You're also a judge and an executive producer. Uh, tell me what that is like kind of, you know, for you. How do you juggle all of those? It's very hard. I mean, I work every day and I am there for any time the contestants are doing a challenge or a quick fire. The hours are long. I think, you know, I eat everything. I'm the only person, I'm only a human being that eats every single thing that's ever been made on Top Chef, at least from season two. Um, and I think that also took a toll on me physically. You know, whereas on Taste the Nation, I do work hard and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm doing everything on Taste the Nation from research with my producers to casting to being on camera, to looking at edits, to being in color correction, to being in sound mixing. And, um, but it's easier because I have, you know, one week on set and then one week at home in, you know, in production here to plan for the next season. I mean, sorry, the next episode. So, you know, in a way I'm never away from home more than a week or two weeks at a time. And I'm a single mom and I have a teenage daughter at home and, I want to be with her and I also want to have a life, you know, and I just find that Taste the Nation for me is much more intellectually stimulating and gratifying, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very proud of Top Chef and of everything that um, we've accomplished in the last 17 years. I mean, 42 Emmy nominations, that's yeah. a lot, you know, including a few for me personally, but um it's it, you're not wrong in that that show is pretty much baked 
and set as it's going to be. And, and so I just wanted, I wanted a new challenge, you know, I wanted to grow. Um, I wanted to expand my wings. Yeah. Well, I want to ask a bit about Taste the Nation, since I know this is kind of, uh, you know, speaks to what you want to be doing next. Uh, it's, it's such a wonderful blend of, you know, travel and food and cultural anthropology uh, and, you know, this amazing examination of the immigrant experience in America. How did that idea develop? Where did that come from? You know, I um, was looking to expand my horizons creatively for a few years now, but um, during the 2016 election, there was all this negative uh, propaganda in the media about immigrants. And I'm an immigrant. I came to America when I was four from India. And I've grown up in immigrant communities, both on the East Coast and the West Coast, and not necessarily Indian immigrant communities, Mexican immigrant communities, Filipino immigrant communities, certainly in California. Um, and I knew that a lot of the vitriol that Steve Bannon or Steve Miller, or, uh, you know, people like that were spewing was completely erroneous and just not based in fact or my lived experience and the experience of many people I knew and loved. And so I, Tom Hanks got me involved with the ACLU. He and Tina Fey recruited me to do this telethon on Facebook and it was so new. And I said, of course, and I just, it was live and I wound up just speaking off the cuff. Um, and then, um, you know, some, some of the people who worked at ACLU recruited me to come back and do some work, you know, behind the scenes with them on immigrant rights. And then they asked me if I would be an artist ambassador um, for women's rights because I had done the foundation for women's health with the Endometriosis Foundation of America, but also just immigrant rights. And so I started speaking on their behalf. I started writing op-eds. Um, I would go to rallies. We had this huge rally in Miami at the university there. And there were like 3000 people there. And it was the first time I had spoken to such a large crowd about an issue like this. And then after three or four years of doing that, I really wanted to put my the things I had learned in my advocacy into my professional life, basically. And so my producing partner and I were working on a documentary series about immigrants. And separate from that, I was also researching a book uh, for my editor on immigrant food. And it's the way I like to eat anyway. Um, and so I showed my producing partner uh, this proposal and I had like gone to Pew Research and Migration Policy Institute and I had so much data and information just as part of this this like 18 page book proposal and he looked through it and I said you may find some data that will help us for our show and he looked at it and he said we should combine the two he said this is so great food is the language that people are used to you speaking anyway and it's a great key to talk to people you know an excuse to go and meet people all over the country and, you know, I had been looking to expand out of food because, frankly, it's hard eating all this food. I mean, Taste the Nation is not anywhere near as bad as Top Chef. Like, Top Chef is, like, no joke, very hard on my system. So I was actually looking to get out of food in spite of, like, wanting to do this cookbook. And he said, but I think it's just going to be great, you know. And, and so it's very rare in my business that you think of an idea in your head and it actually comes out the way you imagined it. 
Yeah, yeah. You do such an amazing job in Taste the Nation of, of identifying these communities uh, to spend time in. And, um, you know, in season two alone, you go to Houston to um, eat Nigerian food. You find this really amazing Greek enclave in Florida. Uh, you you ask the question of, of whether borscht is Ukrainian or Russian. Um, it's Ukrainian. Uh, yes, <laughs> you do answer I mean, that question. Borscht is Ukrainian. There's, yes. there's borscht all over Eastern Europe. But yeah, I mean... Um, how how do you find those those communities and those those places that you want to travel to? How do you select the ones that you're going to visit? It's hard. I mean, I you know, there's so many factors that go in to where we can go. We want to be balanced. We want to show the diversity not only in you know, the American population, but also geographically. Like America is a big beautiful country that has vast differences. You know, if you go from just from Arizona to Hawaii, you know, it's completely different, different things grow there, there are different immigrants that have settled there. And so people don't realize how regional America is. So at the beginning of each season, David Smith and I, my partner, we just sit down and we make a laundry list of where we want to go, and who we want to meet. And sometimes we don't go to the biggest, you know, Thai population, which is in Los Angeles, we decide to go to Las Vegas because that's the story we want to tell of the war brides there because of Nellis Air Force Base. And it's also a story that hadn't been told before. Um, and and so we just try to find interesting stories. And, and, you know, for us, each episode should have its own theme and thesis. It shouldn't just be, oh, we're going to this community. Aren't they cool? Look at their foods. These are their customs. These are what they struggle with. Okay, next week we'll be here. That's not how we approach the show. We try and think about immigration as a huge puzzle with many different facets, economic, cultural, you know, um, any, any facet of American life is encompassed in this huge issue of immigration, which is so integral to the forming of our republic and its constant evolution as a superpower. So, you know, we're looking at different corners of that. So like when we went to Puerto Rico this season, we're talking about sovereignty, food and otherwise. Um, and I, you know, my struggle with that episode is to make the Jones Act interesting and sexy in a good soundbite that yeah. I have to write my VO in so many seconds because that's all I have room for in a half an hour show. I mean, the Puerto Rican episode is a few minutes longer than 30 minutes. And, you know, luckily with Hulu, they're really supportive. And so it's fine if the, the minutes are different. But we had so much other stuff that we had to cut. And that is the hardest part of doing Taste the Nation is understanding how, because we, you know, we plan and plan and we do pre-interviews and we cast and we do a lot of research. I mean, each episode has, you know, anywhere from 60 to 100 pages of research. And then there's the food. Um, and, you know, because I'm going to talk about communities who don't often get a mainstream platform. And I remember what that was like, you know, um, I remember what it was like not even to be lit properly because cameras are made for white skin. So, um, I don't want to do that to them. You know, I, mm -hmm. I want to make sure I take as much care and respect with their story that they're entrusting me with. What I do love about the show is that you you are so relaxed and, you know, we, we see you uh, in in jeans. We see you in boots, you know, wading through the mud. We, we see you in all kind of different aspects of life. And um, I wonder if that has been freeing for you to to be able to kind of let your hair down a bit and, and show a different side. It's been incredibly freeing. It feels more like me. You know, for so many years, people only got a very slim understanding of 
who I was or what my personality was like because, you know, part of being a good host on Top, on top Chef means that you don't necessarily get to see my personality because there's so many moving parts and so much business to be done in those 42 minutes that sometimes eliciting enough feedback from the guest judge means that, you know, I don't get to give you more of myself. But that's what's required on that show. And it was, you know, frustrating also because obviously my brand is very different than Bravo's brand. And, you know, our brands have been diverging for quite some time now. I mean, Top Chef is also admittedly very unlike most of the other programming on Bravo. You know, we're from a different time. Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily, we're still holding our own and the critics still love us. So that's great. I mean, I think that should be a huge feather in Bravo's cap. But it felt incredibly liberating to just be who I am. And, you know, Taste the Nation is also designed to let me explore all of my nerdy interests like history and like, you know, anthropology and and looking at local culture. And I mean, anytime I travel to a place, I always ask the cab drivers where I should go. I don't ask the hotel concierge because they know better, you know, they know where the tourists aren't. And, and it allows me to just um, explore all the things I'm naturally curious about. And it allows me to be who I am. I mean, Taste the Nation is a very clear and direct product of my imagination and of my, of my identity. And everyone should have that privilege. You know, nobody should be stifled. But, you know, when you're starting out in your career, you do what you can to pay your dues and learn. And I certainly did that. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, it sounds like you've had to leave some things on the cutting room floor. Is there anywhere you haven't been able to visit yet that you'd like to visit in a future season? Yes. I mean, I hope that we get green lit. I mean, honestly, it's very scary because I don't know if we're going to get another season of Taste Nation. I like to think we are, but who knows? So I kind of, you know, have a list of what I want to do in the next season. And some of it is going abroad. I mean, it's not called Taste America. It's called Taste the Nation. So we could taste other nations. Like I would love to go and have immigrant food in other countries. Like what, what is Indian food in London like? Well, I know what it's like. It's delicious. So I want to share that with everybody in a way that goes much deeper than what we were able to do on Top Chef. Um, I'd love to eat Turkish food, uh, Turkish food in Berlin, you know, because that that's a huge community there. Uh, I'd love to go to Minnesota and look at Somalis or the Hmong population there. Um, There's so many different Vietnamese populations, but I want to find a new or different way to tell that story. You know, we've we've seen other people go to New Orleans. We've seen them go to Southern California. We know how they've affected the golf shrimping industry, but I'm trying to find what is something that's interesting that we can uncover or at least look deeper at in a way that no one else has. And, you know, the beauty of my show and and other shows like it is that they're so host dependent. So you could have me and Kamau Bell and Stanley Tucci and Lisa Ling go to the same exact community. And those four shows would be completely different because, you know, I'm me and they're them. And, and that's, what's also nice about documentary is that, you can focus on what's like in the upper left corner and say, Hmm, that looks interesting. And often it's the story that's less told. That is, that is more fascinating. It's just more nuanced and harder to tell. So it's a bigger task. Um, But I, 
I have a laundry list in my head of um, a lot of places I want to go. So do you have a philosophy for how you're approaching this season of, of your life and your career? Um, I think it's uh, come what may, you know, is my philosophy. Maybe this will be my eat, pray, love summer. I don't know. I love that. So thinking back about your time on Top Chef, I'm curious, do you have a, a favorite season that stands out to you, whether because of the food or the city or the contestants? Um, I, Krishna was really young and she was with me the whole season then. Um, it was in New Orleans because when I work, I am working so many hours that I never go out. You know, even though when people find out that we're in a certain city, they always want to invite, you know, me and Gail to eat at places and she and Tom work every other day. So they have a lot more free time on their hands than I do, but I'm usually so exhausted that I just go home, wash my makeup off play with my kid and go to sleep. But in New Orleans, I would go out in spite of being so tired. I just would be like, yeah, let's go out. Or I would even go out one, a couple of times. I went out on my own alone. Um, you know, my nanny was at the hotel with Krisha and she would go to sleep early anyway. Cause as, as I said, she was like four then. And I would just be like, let's go hear some live music. And I would go to this reggae place that had, um, you know, papusas in the back of it, somebody cooking these papusas. So it was great. I could have these wonderful little, um, you know, papusa sandwiches and still um, listen to reggae music. And I'd have a drink or two and I'd just be there for an hour and then I'd take a cab home. And I never, ever did that in other seasons, very rarely, because I, again, I don't have time. You know, it usually takes us 12 to 14 hours to film a challenge, an elimination challenge. And it usually takes us about anywhere from eight to 10 or 12 hours to film a quick fire, especially in the early parts of the season when there's so many contestants. So in a two day period, I work 24 hours and I need rest because my body's also processing so much food. Um, And I'm in wheels on concrete. Yeah, absolutely. As we wrap up here, I'm curious, do you think you'll watch the the show in the future? Will you stay in the, Top Chef world, even if you're no longer hosting? I mean, yes, of course, you know, I'll probably, you know, take a look at it from time to time. It will be bittersweet. I mean, that's my house. That's my family, you know, so it'll be hard. It's never easy to leave, to leave something that you know so well. But, you know, to be honest, like I didn't watch reality programming before I got the job. Like, you know, I'm not kidding when I say my interests skew towards Chase the Nation, you know, even as a viewer, um, <clears throat> excuse me, even as a viewer, my taste really skewed towards programming like Chase the Nation. So, you know, when I first took Top Chef, it was to give my second cookbook a little boost. I never really took it that seriously. I never thought that it would become this huge pop culture phenomenon. It would be in 174 countries that I would become so well known. Like I, you know, I, I go to Singapore and people stop me in the street. I go to India and Amsterdam and, you know, Costa Rica and people from all over the world, you know, have grown up with me. Um, and it is, you know, dubbed in so many languages. Like it's funny to hear me being dubbed in different countries. Um, we are in 174 countries and, and so, It's been so wonderful, you know, for me personally and professionally. 
but it was nothing that I honestly set out to do. Maybe that's why, because I never really thought much of it and I just did it. Um, and I think that that's one piece of advice I would give to young people. You know, I have a theater degree. I was trained as an actor. Um, and when Top Chef came along, I was like, okay, you know, but I, thank God I said yes. Thank God I wasn't like, no, no, I'm not going to do that because I want to do this. And I always tell young people, take every opportunity that comes to you, even if it's not exactly how you envisioned your life, because you never know what's going to come out of it. And it's never what you do. It's how well you do it. So no matter what you do, whether you work part time in a florist shop and you don't care about flowers or, you know, you're doing the most menial task or the most memorable task, just give it your all because you don't know what all you're going to learn from it. Yeah, that's great. So I'm curious. I mean, food's been clearly a part of your life and career for a long time. Has your relationship with food changed as a result of Top Chef and now Taste the Nation? Yeah, it really has. You know, I didn't grow up in a very uh, well-to-do family. We didn't go out to fancy restaurants. You know, we went out to eat a couple of times a month, probably have pizza or Chinese or Thai food. And so I didn't grow up knowing the names of chefs. So then when I got the ability to travel after college as a model and I got exposed to all these fancy restaurants, you know, I, I was really fascinated with that kind of food, you know, that modern gastronomy and, and, and that pristineness and things that, you know, you could never do at home without a kitchen staff of 25. But now as I've gotten older, I've actually gotten back to my roots and I think the most exciting thing that's happening in food is actually at the mom and pop level. You know, food is really interesting in that things don't trickle down, they trickle up. Because most of the food that, mo you know, most people eat is not fancy food, you know. And so if you look in the back of it, any fine dining restaurant, you will see that it's mostly black and brown people running that restaurant and then the head chef is white or his chef de cuisine is Caucasian, but they get ideas from those chefs from Chipotle to sumac to yuzu um, to all these things to patties that we've never heard of, but then they'll work their way into a fine dining menu. I mean, when I wrote tangy tart hot and sweet, I was really worried because I was using dried chipotles and nobody had heard of them and nobody could pronounce them. And I was worried nobody could get them if you weren't in a Mexican neighborhood. Now, 14, 15 years later, there's like a chain. There's a whole chain called Chipotle. So, you know, times change. And I just want to make sure that I'm always discovering new things because that to me is exciting. That's what makes my job fun. I'm not a chef. I don't want to be a chef. I don't want to work in a restaurant. I'm a food writer, you know, and I'm happy being that. I'm happy being um, an explorer of food and a teller of stories of our culture and our times. Okay, and our final interview today is with Bridget Everett. Um, our colleague David Canfield did this interview. He couldn't make uh, it to this session, but we are both fans of this show, uh, Somebody Somewhere. So I think it's kind of fun that Natalie and I get to talk about it without him here. Natalie, you also love the show, right? 
I do. I remember I watched the first season on a plane and I was very moved. I, I found myself like tearing up, you know, 30,000 feet above uh, sea level. And um, I just was really blown away by her performance and by the way that the story unfolded. Um, and I was so thrilled to have it come back for season two. Yeah, it feels like such a hidden gem of a show. I, like everyone I know who watches it loves it and especially loves her performance. But I wish more people um, were talking about it. But David, you know, mentioned that he got to talk to her the day after it was announced uh, that it's been renewed for a third season, which was a really big deal. So I think we're in for a really fun interview. Let's take a listen. Well, Bridget Everett, I'm so excited to be talking to you right now because Somebody Somewhere was just renewed for season three, which made me smile. I imagine it made you smile as well. Well, it made me smile pretty big, I gotta, I gotta admit. <laughs> I saw you wrote, uh, you said you can't believe it. What was the journey like of, of waiting for this news? Well, uh, you know, look, we're, we're not getting those um, Last of Us numbers. <laughs> it's a small <laughs> show. And and I think, uh, you know, I've just been nervous, especially with the strike and everything. And I didn't know if we would hear anything or when. So um, I was sitting at the airport and Carolyn Strauss called me. She's like, oh, I got somebody else on the line. And it was Amy Gravett. And they, they told me, of course, I started crying and, you know, really, really handled it like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like handling like a champ to me. I don't know. Yeah. It's... <laughs> It's, I mean, it's been such an interesting run, I think, for this show this season, because it's been on, like, the blockbuster <laughs> Sunday night for HBO, yeah. and I think has absolutely earned its place there. It's such a special show, um, and it, it, I think it has found a lot of, of love. Um, did you find, from season one to season two, just, you know, finding more viewers, getting a little bit more attention, did, did you observe that from your end? Oh, yeah, I, I think, you know, we we're all kind of talking about it. It feels very different now. Like, yeah, um, I just, you know, whether it's online or on the street or whatever, I feel like I'm getting more, more love and more sort of, you know, like, just just the conversations are really nice. Because season one, it was it got, you know, nice reviews and everything, but really felt like it was just under the radar. So when we got a season two, I was like, Oh, my God, this is enjoy this because this is it. Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, um I th we were that was such a gift from HBO that they put us on Sunday night with those two yeah. mega hit shows, which I I love both those shows. It's like oh this is this is such a gift for us, and and um, I definitely think it's helped uh, a lot for for as audience goes. But um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but you know I'm doing the best I can. We no, celebrated absolutely. last night, so <laughs> I had a couple couple martinis last Good. night to celebrate. That's how I want you. <laughs> I want you celebratory, raw and real. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about season two. Um, for you going into it, what was what were some of the big goals that you talked about with your showrunners and just the overall feel for, for what you wanted to accomplish this season? Well, we definitely, I think, understood the voice of the show a little bit better. So it was kind of easier to know what felt right. And mm -hmm. um, I think in season one, we, we discovered for us that if it was too plot driven, it kind of felt... If, 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 I don't know what the right word is, but it felt for us what was working the best were kind of like the the things that happened in the cracks and the yeah and the and just like the sort of slice of lifiness of it all. Um, and Carolyn Strauss, who you know is like such a Hollywood 
legend. She's, you know, kind of our godmother and really helps guide us a lot. And mm-hmm. and we have this thing where we say, oh, is that cutie? Is that too cutie? Cutie, no, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but basically, you know, she's like, we can't lean into the cutie. You know, every, you don't do something that you think makes your show cute. You know what I mean? Because then it won't mm-hmm. work. And so we, so she really helped us strip a lot of that away. And I think it made us better. At least I think so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. And and there's a real core focus this season on Sam's relationships with Joel and with her sister Trisha. And the triangle of those of those dynamics really feels fleshed out this season. I love your work with Joel and I think everybody does who watches <laughs> this show. But, you know, with you and Jeff Hiller this season it's such a beautiful exploration of, as the show's tagline calls it, a platonic romance, um, but also some of the challenges that are presented there. How did you just find working with him and, and working through some of those more painful parts this season? Well, Jeff is a dream. So, you know, and so is Joel. I think Jeff might be even sweeter than Joel is, if you can believe it. And we live <laughs> together and I've never had, you know, any conflict with him at all. You know, we're, we're, we just get along really well. And I kind of knew him from before the show, but got to have gotten to know him really well because of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to like, just keep Sam and Joel in this like, kitty little bubble the whole time. I mean, for me, that's not life. Like sometimes, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I felt like it was important for them to, to sort of have a couple bumps in the road and how they, and how they work through it and that Sam will work through it, you know, that she's, you know, she is so afraid of growth and love and change, but with somebody like Joel, who's undeniable, she's willing to kind of face her lesser self and try to do better. Um, so, so yeah. And and I've had a friendship that was similar to the, the Joel Mm -hmm. and Sam dynamic and, and you do sort of like kind of get to a point where you're just so all in on each other that mm-hmm. it's that it starts to become a little unhealthy and there's not room for anybody else, at least in Sam's eyes and, and maybe Bridget sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. <laughs> but yeah, to, to your point, I mean, it does hinge more on Sam having to face reality uh, a little bit uh, to some extent. And I I saw that challenging you as a performer in a pretty exciting way. Um, and the role as a whole is so rich and well-written. Um, but did you did you find yourself pushing yourself a little bit as, as an actor as well this season? Yeah, I, I feel like I, you know, I'm, I'm not a trained actor. I'm not saying I can't act or whatever. I'm just saying that for me, it's, it's, I sort of have to find my footing kind of, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that I understood Sam a little bit better and I just relaxed into things a little more this year and kind of let myself off the hook a little bit to just kind of, you know, like sometimes I'm like, oh, is that funny? You know, just I didn't worry about any of that. I'm just like, just show up, talk to the person and walk away. <laughs> and if they don't have it, we'll do it again. <laughs> you know, and I, and I feel like that that really helped. And like, and, you know, some of like the more tender moments and like the more painful things, it just, I feel like sort of protective of Sam in a way. So it's easy to kind of lock into those Mm -hmm. moments and you know we you know we did one scene you know there's a fight scene between joel and sam yeah and um and you know we're coming out of our trailers that night getting ready to go home and have some you know pasta for the table and jeff walks out of his trailer and looks at me he's like are are you are you mad at me i was like i was like no that was just you know it's but it's 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 so painful it's like you know I, i feel like 
Jeremy Strong or something. It's just like kind of like <laughs> during, during the time, during the, the, sh- the shot of the scene, it's like, I can't be like, oh, hey, girl, between texts, you know, or, you know, between yeah. takes. I just, it, you know, I really, I know we all really tried to do our best to make everything as authentic as possible. That was kind of the end goal and, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Is that something you have had to learn, particularly over the course of the show? I mean, it's obviously a, a breakthrough role for you just in terms of how to comport yourself on set, figure out how to be between takes, stuff like that. All that. I think it's a, it's a huge learning curve, but I feel like between like season one and season two, I've learned so much, you know, being like trying to be a good number one, trying (laughs) to, trying to make people, you know, you also have to worry about that. You know, I, I know a lot of people already knew that, but like, it's kind of my job to sort of make people feel good and to set a, set an example. And then, then you have to like do these very painful things or try to be funny and, and, I just found that the best way was just to sort of show up every day, have a good attitude and just let myself go in the scene and really sort of hope for the best. And that's, that's not a very good descriptor, but I, I think, you know, I, I've been doing cabaret for a really long time, which, you know, yeah. <laughs> is, is cooler than it sounds, <laughs> but, it, but it is storytelling in a way. And you sort of, sure. I know, I know that language and I feel like I've learned the language of being on set better, but, um, it helps that it's I'm surrounded by very supportive people that I know know are on my side. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that really helps because I'm so in my head all the time um, that this has been a nice. Um, I hope that this changes me for the better moving forward to like mm. just relax and give myself a shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. It felt like this season. You mentioned the cabaret. Uh, I love the moments of singing for Sam in, in this season, particularly, and how they, they always mark something really important uh, for this character. You can sing. <laughs> that That's quite clear as we watch. Um, but how do you think about it in terms of the character and, and when to show that, how to reveal that, and how that how to chart her, her journey along those lines? Yeah, because I, I think it should, it, it should be like Sam's walk through life. Like, sometimes you're listening to music and you're overcome by it, like in the funeral scene, like the beauty of that to me, when listening to other people sing can sometimes be the musical moment, you mm-hmm. know, and then sometimes it's getting up and motorboating somebody. <laughs> but at some time, it's the intimacy of how you share, um, like with the voice teacher, what that, what that feels like. I mean, to me, it's like, it's they're markers of Sam's emotional growth in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never wanted to feel like, glee like nothing wrong with glee but you know like oh here comes a song it's yeah it's like where would how would music organically weave through sam's life and her day and and um so that's we have to think about we give it a lot of care like that's really important to us like when she sings what she sings and etc etc in terms of her she has these moments with a music teacher this season I'm not sure if you want to share anything, but were there parts of it that you you related to in terms of what it brought up for her, how it, you know, how doing this kind of thing impacted her personally or revealed something about herself? Yeah. I mean, for me, like talking about singing and talking about music is so um, emotionally charged. It's hard for me to even yeah. do it. So I wanted to have a thing where you kind of can feel that from Sam, not not that she's just talking to somebody about it. And I think that the, and I've seen voice lessons like, you know, on a movie or a TV show, but that wasn't, those are not my experiences. I want to do something low and slow and with the breath and, 
you know, a lot of times I'll just be describing something in the writer's room and then, you know, I'll see clickety clickety and like, <laughs> so, you know, we'll start transcribing something that feels like it might resonate. And we'll oftentimes put exactly what I said into the script, just to just describing the feel that I, I'm looking for, or, you know, um, but I think that the, the stuff of the voice teacher to me is so special because that relationship is such a unique and interesting. It's like, I feel like, uh, you know, Darlene, the teacher Darlene sees Sam in a way that is kind of makes her feel naked, like makes her feel laid mm-hmm. bare. And so when she puts her hand on her chest, like it's, it's like scary, but Sam trusts her and, and Barbara who plays the part is just so wonderfully perfect in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really great chemistry and it was, it was emotional doing it, but also like freeing, you know, it just, I can't, I constantly feel like Sam was, I'm learning from her and like her sort of willing to, to move forward a little bit in life. Cause I'm not like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. not like that. <laughs> she, she's a character to learn from for us all. I think, <laughs> <laughs> but you bring up a, a great point about what I love about this show. Like that touching moment you're talking about because it is a smaller show. Those moments carry so much weight. Like the way people look at each other, the way people laugh, the way they communicate through, you know, physical touch or whatever it is. Like how, how over the course of two seasons now, have you thought about those beats and what, what really matters in a show like this, what people really feel when they're watching it or what you even feel as an actor when you're playing? Well, I, I think we're not worried about like bump set spike jokes or whatever, you know what I mean? Like we're not worried about like, we'd like the pace of it. We'd like that it has room to breathe and our editors really understand that and do such a great job you know, like sometimes we'll, the scripts will be like 23 pages or whatever, but we know mm. that we're going to allow time for, to like, to sit with people. Because to me, it's like, it's not what the person says. It's kind of the aftershock after of how it makes a person feel. And not like we're trying to be indulgent and like, you know, cry, 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 baby girl, baby girl. <laughs> it's more <laughs> like, it's just to sit with it is something that we enjoy. Um, that we think works for us. And I think it's, um, you know, specifically with the voice stuff, I was like, this is so niche. Like, I think, I don't know. I was really nervous mm. about it. I thought like, it just felt too specific, but as in anything else, like sometimes the more specific you are, the more universal it can be in whatever way it finds people. I don't know. I'm rambling, yeah. but I think you're getting it. I hope. <laughs> no rambling, no rambling. <laughs> um, the the tone of the show is is what makes it so special and i'm curious for you coming in as an as an ep this being a breakthrough project for you what did you need to learn about like filmmaking and things that maybe you didn't know in terms of executing something like this especially something that really feels like an indie film from you know, maybe 15 years ago that just doesn't get made as much anymore. Well, first of all, there's like, we call ourselves a four top. Um, there's uh, Paul Thurid and Hannah Boss, who are the show mm-hmm. creators and uh, EPs, and then Carolyn Strauss and then me. And I think that one, it's like we're in class every day with Carolyn Strauss and she's like our instructor, but she also treats us like a peer. You know what I yeah. mean? And I think that's critical to, to sort of helping us grow with the show. Um, and, and we're all always kind of just on the same, we have the same 
idea for the show. And sometimes Paul and Hannah and I can sort of be unclear, but we know if we go to Caroline's, she's going to have the right eye. And same thing with, you know, our, our executives at HBO, they're really locked into the show and the emotions of it. And, and I just feel like everybody puts so much of their heart into it. And there's so much care, even though it's only seven episodes. I mean, we really spend all year long working on it. You know, the, mm-hmm. the writer, the writing we take a lot. I mean, every scene is just like, re- like, really thought out and like, and I don't know, I'm, I, I think I'm getting off topic again. I just sometimes start talking, especially when I'm a little hungover, you know, I, I'm doing my best. <laughs> Bridget Everett hungover. That's the only way I want to do this. <laughs> it's not my fault. I didn't know we were going to announce yesterday we got to pick yeah, up. <laughs> nobody knew, nobody knew this timing, but just to be clear, we, uh, <laughs> it's just luck. <laughs> we're all on a high. It's yes, it is pure yeah. luck. Uh, um, the, when the, when the renewal announcement came out, I saw a number of tweets like reacting to the news that were like Alexa play Gloria, which <laughs> I think speaks to the power of, of your ending and your, your finale performance. Can you just take me back to the decision to do that song in that way and what it felt like to perform it? Yeah. Murray and Jeff and I were living together in what was affectionately known as the ding dong dorm. And, <laughs> and on Saturdays we would go to target. Cause that's kind of what you do in rural, rural Illinois. We'd go to breakfast, mm-hmm. get a little French toast for the table and then go to target. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we got in one time and Jeff was driving and you know, the, the car, like, you know, starts off. It's like, Daria! I was like, sorry, that's really loud. But like, just like jamming, like every song was like, and I can't remember the name of the playlist. It was like, yes, girl, or something like that. And like, every, it was like smash it after smash it. But there was something about Gloria that like, got us going so much. I was like, this has to be the song. And especially knowing how much Jeff himself loves it. Um, mm. And then when we decided to put it in the finale, I don't know, it's it all felt right. And that's a really hard song to sing. Miss Brannigan has a rangy voice. I don't have a rangy voice. So we did the best we could. But it's really just about the the expression of it and the feeling of it, I think. So I, I think it ended up working, but um, yeah, yeah, that's why we picked that song. <laughs> I, th- I think the viewers agreed on that one. I think, uh, I think it played pretty well. Um, this doesn't feel like a leap to me to say that um, having this show air, you know, at the tail end of a, of a very widely watched block of, of yeah. HBO shows um, was pretty meaningful to me, at least this year, just knowing the focus you all have on the queer community on, you know, different kinds of LGBTQ people and relationships uh, amid a lot of horrible things going on around the country. I'm, I'm just curious, like not what your level of awareness is there, but the knowledge that you are putting out this kind of representation on a network that has a lot of eyeballs at a time when it's, I think, pretty important. I, I think like, I'm happy that this show exists in this time. I think it's important for people to see, for instance, that Fred Rococo is a person that lives and breathes and loves just like the rest of us. And yep. you couldn't ask for a better representation than Murray Hill. He's, he's infectious and charming and, and uh, you know, a lot of legislation and the legislation in Kansas is not good. Yeah. Um, but I know, like, I was just in Kansas over the weekend for a finale viewing party. And I saw all, there were a lot of people from the queer community there and what it means to them is, is special to us. And, you know, Murray tells me about the messages that he gets. Jeff tells me about the messages that he gets. And to me, these are my family, you know, this, these, 
these people are my family and they should be on screen. Murray Hill should have been a star a long time ago. Jeff Hiller mm-hmm. should have been a star a long time ago. Um, so I feel like um, I hope my hope is that people see the show and maybe have a um, a change of heart and maybe open their eyes a little bit. Because I know there are people there, you know, at this viewing party and get in Kansas, you know, they're from a different generation and mm-hmm. see things uh, a certain way, you know, and but it was you could feel the room and you could feel that love is all around you. And I, and I hope that people that have judgments and, and uh, you know, are narrow minded in some aspects um, that this can help be a a device for them to learn and grow. Yeah. I think the show also challenges what, you know, quote unquote, liberal coastal, whatever you want to call it, people view how how they view rural America and how they view um, these kinds of places where you say this kinds of, this kind of legislation is being passed. And within that you do, do still have, you know, vibrant and interesting communities of people. Yeah. And I, you know, like uh, a relative of mine who shall rename <laughs> nameless, you know, we, we give each other a lot of shit about our politics. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there was something about like, you know, you know, it, 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 it opens up some discussions about say trans legislation that, you know, I think is important for us to be having. And I, and I enjoy having those conversations mm-hmm. and let them know that maybe like this talking point that you here on Fox News or whatever, let me tell you about some real life situations. And let me tell you why I don't agree with you. And I don't know, I'm probably getting off course again. But, you know, it's, it's, it weighs heavy on my mind, you know, I feel like, it's like, it's not, it's not like the point of the show, the point of the show is really just to kind of show a bunch of people different as they are, like a middle aged plus size woman, a gay guy, a transfer, you know, like, and how they just exist in, in a world and, and in a small town place. And, and when I was growing up in Manhattan, you know, there was like one gay guy in town. I mean, that's not true, but you know what I mean? Like there was sort of like whatever. And, and then it's now it's, it's much different there. There's this, you know, this Flint Hills true colors house, which is great for LGBTQ kids and, and I, I saw a lot of diversity in the room, a lot of out and proud people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really uh, good to, it's a good reminder that we're, we're here and we're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll clarify for you, for listeners who aren't as familiar that you were talking about Manhattan, Kansas. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Not Manhattan, New York. <laughs> Manhattan, New York does have more than one out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't walk out the elevator, you know. <laughs> Indeed, you cannot. Uh, that's quite, quite right. Um, well, I was, uh, I wanted to mention, I, I interviewed uh, Annalie Ashford recently, and she told me that she she reflected on, I think it was both of your first movies, which was Sex in the City, and how yeah. you guys were <laughs> uh, waiting in the like the middle of the night at the Astor Place Starbucks. Yeah, um, to ripped on like <laughs> 17 espressos. I was, I, I didn't know you weren't supposed to drink it every time. I was like... <laughs> And I like I went to meet my friends afterward, and I was like shaking. And I think they actually were on cocaine. I was not. I don't do cocaine. <laughs> I was just like anyway. That's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> it's the mid two thousands, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But what, like, take me back to that moment for for Bridget Everett in in New York on her first set. What, what was that like? Well, I happen to know Michael Patrick King because I did a show with him at Ars Nova, um, which is a theater for emerging artists in uh, Midtown Manhattan, New York. And um, <laughs> and and he wrote a little part for me. He told me that he did, and he's like, 
but you still have to audition and don't fuck it up. And, you know, I have a habit of fucking things up, but they, I went and auditioned for all them and they were so like, they're like, we're going to give you this part, just relax and whatever. And, and then you show up on set on such a huge, like iconic, yeah. um, whatever you call vehicle, or I don't know what the right word, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not using my words well, but, and I'm sitting there and it's, you know, and Annalie and, and Peter Kim and I were like the three sort of applicants or whatever. And we're all, we're just like stars in our eyes, kind of freaking out. And, and they were all so funny. Anyway, you know, then you sit down across from SJ, Sarah Jessica, and <laughs> she like puts her hand on my knee and just, you know, sort of like helping calm me down. Cause she can see just like me blowing my head wide open that I'm even there. And, Again, a loving environment, cool experience, and uh, and look at Annalie now. She's she's gonna have herself a little another knickknack on the shelf here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> look at both of you now, though, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, got we gotta we gotta. I forget. Yeah, I'm doing all right too. <laughs> You're doing all right too. You have a season three. I'm gonna. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are hungover for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, now that you do have a season three, now that you've come off of a really successful second season, and I think you've shown i would imagine yourself a lot of people you know what you can do as an actor how do you how do you see what you do next how do you see how do, how does the the possibility cloud change shape for you well you know like we've we've you know before the strike we wrote season 3 or you know at least where we thought it what we wanted yeah. to be and and i think it's it's just kind of leaning in more to like the realities of life and trusting myself that I can pull it off. You know, like this season I was like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy shit in here. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I was nervous and especially with the loss of Mike Haggerty, I felt like sort of because he was so, you know, who played Ed, my father mm-hmm. in like season one. And, and he was such a huge part of the heart of the show. And just like, I don't know. I just, that was really hard and like, and, and not having him Cause he was really a confidence booster for me. He like, we had such a great chemistry and he was, I just felt calm with him and safe. And like with him being gone, I felt a little unmoored. Is that the right use of that word? I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think what I'm trying to take away from the entire experience of somebody somewhere is to trust my voice and to stop getting in my own way. And I, I do feel like I'm starting to believe that, that I'm, that I can do it. <laughs> well, it's we just, are. It's just what it's, what it's in your DNA. You can't shake it. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like yeah. imposter syndrome necessarily. It's more just like, I don't want to let all these people down. <laughs> like you look around, there's a hundred crew members or whatever. And yeah. And the, and the, you know, the writers and the producers and HBO, it's like, if I think about it too long, like. You know, I think I thought about that in season one. Like, I, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. And this time I just tried to not think about any of that. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, I can assure you, you are not letting sit <laughs> down. Here we are. Season three on the way. Here we are. I'm talking to you on VanityFair.com. <laughs> that does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I'm at Becca M. Ford. Natalie? I'm at Nat Jarve. And David can be found at David Canfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. 